0: Good morning and welcome. My name is Brian from Valleytown Church, and today we're asking the question, what does God know? And we're not asking that in kind of like an accusatory sense of like, what does he know? I I know what I wanna do with my life. Clearly, I'm making the best choices. I'm living my best life now. No, it's more of a, a search through the scriptures to figure out what kinds of things, what kind of details does God know about? And how does that affect our faith? And how does it affect our future? And whether or not we have a choice in any of our decisions whatsoever? Right? Does God's foreknowledge, if He has it, uh, affect whether or not we have free will? And obviously, the answers to these questions have a variety of different camps within the family of Christianity and how they would answer them. And right, different different Bible verses that people might rest on with greater confidence than others. And and it definitely shapes your your interpretation of the scriptures. And as we're on our way towards Romans nine, I couldn't quite get there this week. uh, This ended up being kind of a key, another key piece of information that we need to have. And so we're gonna ask the question, what does God know? And what would it mean for him to foreknow someone or a people, right? So here we go. Let's first start off in Psalm 139 written by David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. And so God knows the present dealings of David, right? He is aware of when he's sitting down and rising up, okay? And so We also would know that information if we had some sort of surveillance on David or if we were just hanging out with him. We could tell. It'd be very obvious to us when those things are happening. All right. So God knows the superficial actions and behaviors of David in the present moment. All right. And we could infer that he's the same way about us, that he knows presently what we are doing, except he knows it for all people everywhere. Okay, and so that's definitely a lot of knowledge. But David goes further than that. He said that God knows his thoughts. And while we, to a degree, can try to infer what someone's thinking, we could read their countenance and their expression, we might be able to determine a tell that they have and whether or not they're lying or bluffing. Uh, we don't know the thoughts that people have. And yet, God does. God knows the very thoughts that we have. He knows our thoughts and intentions, our motives. He knows the human heart. And so God knows more than we do. All right. So we certainly don't have that level of knowledge. Let's keep going. Verse three, you search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. And so this is where we begin to see about the idea of God looking ahead, that God knows where David is going. And God knows the types of decisions that David makes. He knows the way that David behaves. And so God knows our future path and the the way we act out, right? The types of responses we would have to the situations we would come across. All right. But even more than just kind of knowing our general trajectory, in verse 4 it says, Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together, all right? so we obviously, if we're in the room with someone or listening to a recording, we can hear the words that someone speaks, or we might even be able to read the lips of someone across a room, okay? But we we could kind of determine a lot of those things, but, but we can't know what someone's going to say before they say it. And yet God has this knowledge. God knows what someone's gonna say before they say it. Banana phone. Right. You didn't know I was going to say that unless you saw my notes, I suppose, which, yeah, it's weird that I wrote that down, I suppose. But God knows what we're going to say. And he didn't know it just because I wrote it down. Even if I said something completely out of the blue, he knows precisely what I'm going to say, what I'm going to do. Verse five, you hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. And so God knows everything about David. Uh, There isn't a step that David could make that isn't predicted by God. There's not some corner of the universe that David could hide in or do something that God could not foresee. David is hemmed in. All right, so God also lays his hand upon him. The, The New Living Translation actually says, You place your hand of blessing on my head. Right. And so that's a possible interpretation of that it it actually reminded me of Psalm 32 verse eight. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. And so I'm kind of like imagining a possible interpretation, right? God having his hand on David's shoulder and looking at the path ahead of him and instructing him. This is what you need to do. This is what you ought to do, even though at times David and us right we resist the things that we should do and we do the things that we shouldn't but what's interesting is that even in those moments when we don't do the things we ought god still isn't surprised by our sin let's go verse six such knowledge is too wonderful for me it is high i cannot attain it and david you're right That is a ridiculous amount of knowledge to think about. That is overwhelming to consider how God knows every detail about every human, uh, about what they'll do, about what's previously happened in their lives, about what they're thinking, about what they're about to say, about their ways and the way that they behave. God knows all of these things. And that's a little bit overwhelming, right, David? That's too wonderful for us and to someone who is a rebel against God, this fact that God has this kind of knowledge they might find frustrating. They might be angry about this. They might consider it an invasion of their privacy. They don't want God to know these things. They don't want to be accountable to an all-knowing God, right, where their hearts are completely exposed to him. But to a follower of Jesus, God knowing all of these details is reassuring. Right. Jesus says that the father even knows has numbered the hairs on our head. Okay, and so he loves us. He cares for us. He knows every detail of our lives. Right. He's somewhat infatuated with us in like a really positive way. And yet, nonetheless, the idea of God knowing might bring to question some uh, issues regarding free will and fatalism. Does God, knowing my future, take away any liberty I have to choose in any given moment? Does his foreknowledge also come with it, his actual control of my life? Am I so destined in that sense that I have no free will? No libertarian free will is the term that people use, right? Does God, in his future knowledge, determine all events, Does he cause all of our our actions or more specifically, is he the effectual cause of our actions? Do we in any part have a play in our choices? Let's keep reading about Psalms. Verse 13, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame is not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. And so David's reflecting on the fact that God doesn't just know the next step he takes or the word that he speaks but that every day of his life is known by God. And God knew all of these details before David was born, right? Before he was formed. Verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Skipping to verse 23, search me, O God. And know my heart, try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. And so David, at the conclusion of this psalm, he's praying for God to actually test him and try him to to search out his life and his heart and everything about him to to determine whether there's any sinful attitudes that are remaining in him, which, yes, there were. Right. And he wants God to actually he turns his life over to God. He says, listen, please lead me in the way everlasting All right. Like when you find these things, help me to overcome them, that he is submitting his life to God in its entirety. So I start with this psalm and I want us to just think about the kind of knowledge that God has. God knows a lot of things. He knows every detail about the universe that he made. And as a result, that knowledge that God has gives us great confidence in him. That we can believe him when he says things, because not only does he know things, but he doesn't lie about the things that he tells us. Okay, and so we can have confidence when we place our faith in him, his knowledge of our life in great detail and our future gives us reason that we can trust him with our future. And what's interesting is, as we've read through uh, Hebrews 11, the hall of faith and some of the lives of the people of old, we see that God does, in fact, know the future. And sometimes he tells us about it. Right. God warned Cain about the danger of his coming sin and the need to rule over it. God warned Noah about the coming judgment through the flood and what he needed to do to preserve his and his family's lives. God made promises to Abraham about a future child, about the promised land being inherited by his offspring, about even generations later that his own offspring would be slaves in a distant land. He even told Abraham about the sins of the Amorites that would continue to be committed in that promised land until those people were worthy of the judgment that would yet to be poured out. And so, right, God even knew the lives and sins of the people that didn't follow him, okay? And a couple generations later, when Isaac, uh, or actually I guess that's one generation later, right, when Isaac uh, and Rebecca become pregnant, and she has these two twins inside of her that are warring in her, and she doesn't know what's going on. She didn't even know she had twins at the time. God speaks about the future birth of these twins. And God speaks about the future lives of these men and possibly even so of the nations that they represented, right? God spoke to her while she was pregnant and said that the older shall serve the younger. And in fact, it's those two boys, Jacob and Esau, and write a particular bible verse in romans chapter 9 that has led us to today's whole bible study adventure okay that based on this verse and the multitude of ways that it could be interpreted it brings into question right what god means when he talks about those two boys okay uh and as a result before we get there i realized it would be beneficial for us to do a little bit more groundwork uh in order to better understand it and no, I'm not just trying to wait for Jesus to return so I don't have to preach on Romans chapter 9. So, Lord willing, we'll get there. So, there uh, so, God knows a lot of things. God knows the future. He knows the end from the beginning. And sometimes he had his prophets write it down in the scriptures. And throughout human history, we've seen some of those prophetic promises fulfilled. But yet, knowledge of the present and the past and the future... And every detail, that's not the only kind of knowledge that God seems to have as described in the scriptures, that God appears to have knowledge about potential futures that won't happen. All right. That's kind of weird to think about these hypothetical. What if scenarios? It appears as though God knows about them, too. All right. He knows how we would respond, right? He knows the ways of David and he knows the ways of us. He knows how we would respond in some of these what if situations. Okay, And this type of knowledge philosophers refer to as God's middle knowledge. All right. It is what would happen if certain circumstances were to occur. Okay, Uh, And sometimes in the Bible, right, uh, we see these moments described by God or they kind of play out a little bit where God says what would have happened if the situation was slightly different. And philosophers call that sort of scenario a counterfactual, a claim or a hypothesis, all right? A hypothetical state of the world that is then used to assess an, the impact of, of an action. And so it's kind of like this weird what-if scenario. And what's interesting about God is it appears as though he has this what-if knowledge. But let me let me justify that. In Isaiah 48, this is an Old Testament prophet speaking to the people of Israel and the Lord's call to them. Verse 17, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord, your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. All right, so we can kind of see where God's desiring for them to have responded what God wanted them to do. He says, Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness, like the waves of the sea, your offspring would have been like the sand and your descendants, like its grains, their name would never be cut off or destroyed from before me. And so notice, a few times in that passage he talks about would have been right would never be and it all seems to primarily hinge on the oh that you had paid attention oh that you had listened to my commands right god seems to indicate that the choices that the nation of israel made had a very real outcome on their circumstances and at the same time it communicated what he was rooting for, what he desired them to do the entire time, right? He instructed them in the way that they should have gone and they didn't listen. All right, we see these similar uh, would have scenarios. Uh, In Matthew 23, as as Jesus is coming towards Jerusalem and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have, all right, How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. And so once again, it seems to be hinged partly on the choices, the actions of the people that Jesus is describing that he's talking about. The particular group at that time that was rejecting his work in their lives and that if they were willing that he would have gathered their children under right, his wings, okay? that That's what we kind of see, this other would-have scenario. What's interesting is that God has this uh, would-have, could-have-happened sort of knowledge of the, way, the ways that people respond, and there's actually an instance in the Bible where he even tells one of his followers about that knowledge, and it's actually King David again. There's a moment in which Saul is hunting down King David, and David is hiding in a particular city. This is 1 Samuel 23. And uh, David goes to the Lord in prayer, and he says, Will the men of Keilah uh, let's see, Keilah? Keilah surrender me into his hand. Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O oh Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down, about Saul coming to hunt David at that city. Then David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah. And they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up, gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. And so what's interesting in this moment is David asks like, all right, is Saul coming to get me here? Yes. Will the people of this village hand me over to him? Yes. And then neither of those things quite happened. All right, Uh, right? David used that information and left, he fled. And then the people never had the opportunity to turn him over to Saul. And so David's prayer was this kind of what-if scenario. And God expressed to him the information that he knew about how those people would have responded if Saul showed up while David was in the city. And then David uses that information and leaves. He flees and his life is preserved. And so it's kind of, kind of interesting. Did God lie? Was God wrong? Was this a type of prophecy that God was just wrong about? No. God was describing to David this counterfactual. If you're still in the city, right? Well, and Saul shows up, they will turn you over to him. And so God knew the response of these free will individuals in this village if they were given a particular circumstance. And he tells David about it. So it's kind of kind of interesting. And so King David, I imagine this is probably when you would say this knowledge is too wonderful for me, right? Like starting to think about like, wait a minute, God just answered that prayer, but then that didn't happen. That means it could have happened if I stayed here. And he's like, wait a minute, God knows, (laughs) right? God knows all of this other types of hypothetical versions of reality. That's kind of weird, right? But I want to point out. It turns out, even though we don't have this middle knowledge, we are still able to partly make predictions about future outcomes and consequences based on actions and behaviors and patterns and trends. And in fact, God has even given commands in the Old Testament where he expects us to predict certain outcomes in the future based on particular circumstances. All right. That we don't have middle knowledge like God does perfectly knowing all of these what if scenarios, but we are supposed to be thinking ahead. We are supposed to be living wise where we take into consideration these things. Here we go. Exodus 21 verse 35. And I know this is what you've been wondering about, right? Those who've been doing the Bible reading plan in a year. You read this and you're like, why do I need to know this? Well, here's something that might help you. When one man's ox butts another so that it dies. Oh man, I actually really wanted to know. What do I do in this situation if my ox kills someone else's ox, right? Then they shall uh, sell the live ox and share its price. And the dead ox also they shall share. Okay, so like, oh, it's just an accident. Animals being animals, okay. We'll, we'll split the difference. Okay, we'll be, we'll each divide the outcome. And so that seems to be a fair ruling. But notice next, verse 36. Or if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox and the dead beast shall be his. As in it, sh- the dead, uh, he gets to keep the one that was right gourd and then the living one is now belonging to his neighbor and so what i want to point out is that an ox owner was expected to observe and anticipate the future response of their animal based on its past behavior and that the owner is held accountable if he doesn't act according to this knowledge okay and so consider this if an ox owner can anticipate the response Of another being this animal then God can certainly predict the responses of a free will human being okay and in God's case he's not just making predictions or guesses he knows this perfectly accurately he has this information right if an ox owner is expected to act according to that knowledge and he was held accountable if he didn't then certainly God too can use his foreknowledge and make choices and plans accordingly. And so here we go. So the ox owner can make, (laughs) can know that his ox behaves a certain way and can even restrain some of that ox's actions by tying it up. And yet the ox owner can still use that ox for good purposes, to plow his field, for instance. In fact, Proverbs 14, four, where there are no oxen, the manger is clean, but abundant crops come by the strength of an ox. And so an ox owner can have this rebellious animal that's been known to gore, but he still can use this wicked animal, right? Well, wicked, right? For his own good purposes while keeping it partially restrained. And so now consider this. If he can bring good from that sort of animal and its own actions, restraining some of them, then I think God too can do that. I think God can restrain some sin through his commands, through government, through his judgment. I think he, too, can use humans' own free will choices to bring about good things for his glory, right? Even if we humans are rebelling against him with some of those choices. I think that God can endure having a stubborn ox for a season and still fulfill his purposes. Okay, and we've we've already seen moments like this in the stories of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, right where when uh, Isaac was blessing his son, Isaac and Rebecca and Esau and Jacob, all of those individuals were in some way doing wrong. And yet God's plan still prevailed right? Even though all of them were making different choices as to, I don't know, should I, should I go in disguise? What if he, what if he recognizes that I'm not really Esau and I get a curse instead of a blessing, right? If they're all making these choices and yet God knew while they were still in their mom's womb, that the older would serve the younger. God wasn't surprised by any of their actions or behavior. Okay. So I've set up the stage for God's knowledge and God, even his foreknowledge, his knowing the future and the ways that we as humans respond to circumstances we face in the world. Let's jump into Romans chapter eight. Okay, here we go. Romans eight twenty-eight, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good, uh, for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Okay. And so what, what I see when I read this, all right, that for the people who love God and are called according to his purpose, God is at work in their lives. That even when there's suffering as described elsewhere in Romans chapter eight, okay, it's not a super convenient, comfortable life that God promises us, but even when there's suffering, God is at work in our lives, that his purposes will prevail. And that although he may not be directly causing, so to speak, all of these painful, suffering, persecuting things that might happen to us, he is purposing them to work together for good, for our good and for his glory. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he, that is Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, all right, so he's got this destiny for them, this purpose for them, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so verse 29, we start to see this idea of like, all right. God's foreknown people. He's predestined them, right, that he he has this desire that they will become like Jesus, live like Jesus in this earth, that this is something that God has decided based on what he knows and what he wants and desires, that he has called these people that he's foreknown, right, that God has a, a purpose for them to serve him in his will. He has also justified them. He's made them right. He, he's perhaps, I could even say, commended them as righteous on the basis of their faith since we've been reading Hebrews 11. And God also has glorified them. In our case, this is a future event in which we will be given new bodies that are no longer at war with our spirits. Okay, on Mount Transfiguration, when Jesus, he is glorified and revealed right to some of his disciples as being the son of God that they should listen to. Who do we see on the mountain with him? But Moses and Elijah. Okay, these two individuals, people of old who have loved God. And now they seem to be in a state in which they're talking with Jesus, right? That they're already in eternity to some degree. And yet all of these chain reactions, right? This, as far as being uh, predestined and called and justified and glorified, all of these seem to hinge about the people that God foreknew. And it's right. It sounds like that is the thing that once that happens, boom, 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 boom. The rest is a guarantee. Okay. And I would point out that uh, as far as the people that God foreknew, I would imagine it's describing the people in verse 28, those who love God and are called according to his purpose, right? It Even in both verses describes them as being called, but yet nonetheless, the people that God foreknew amongst the family of believers, there's multiple interpretations, okay? And so you're still a member of the family of God if you land in one of these camps and there's probably other ways to interpret it as well the simplest kind of least complicated way to interpret those who God foreknew is is that Paul is reflecting on the people God knew before us, right? The people the the people God used to hang out with, right? Uh, and and notice as far as just an argument for this case, the past tense of all of the other words, foreknew, predestined, called, justified, glorified, okay, that All of these are kind of like past tense words. He could be describing a previous group of followers of God. Yet, it's also worth pointing out that those could be describing kind of this future event that has so much certainty attached to it for those who love God, okay, that it's a done deal, all right? It's like that we have been glorified even though it's a yet to happen thing, like that events have been set in motion that cannot stop Now that some could argue it that way. It's the already, but not yet nature of God's kingdom. But yet earlier in this passage, I would point out that God did talk about glorification as a future event, not a past tense event. In in verse 17, he says, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. And so it kind of describes it like, there's still this yet to come event so nonetheless when it comes to these individuals uh, those whom he foreknew it's possible paul is talking about the people of old right uh one new testament theologian says you could have translated it roughly for those who god formerly knew he previously determined them to be conformed to the image of his son and this is kind of similar to hebrews 11 right uh, for by it, by faith, the people of old received their commendation, and so it's possible that Paul is reflecting on God's faithfulness to the people who have lived before us to remind us that we can have confidence that God continues to do the same sort of thing in our lives, in our day. Right? That it's it's speaking to the character of God that we can trust Him with our future. And so this is a possible interpretation of that passage regarding who are the people that God foreknew. Maybe it's talking about believers in the Old Testament. Okay. Another common uh, interpretation is that the people that God foreknew are those that God has effectually chosen from before time began. That people that God chose for them to believe in him and there, thereby be saved, right? This is often referred to as Calvinism, okay? And just so you're aware, I, I'm probably not a Calvinist. I don't think so, but I listen and I study. I, I, I have grown under the ministries of those who are. And so if you're a Calvinist, you're in the family of God, okay? And so this isn't any mean, any. there is no need for us to divide over these issues. Okay. Uh, but nonetheless, the Calvinist interpretation would interpret that word for new to mean that God loved them before, not just like known them before. And their argument is that the word no, especially in a, in the old Testament context was this relational knowledge. Okay. Like Adam knew Eve and she conceived. Okay. And so like, you can kind of see like, okay, it's this relational Knowledge and and so their argument is that God uh, foreknew, God foreloved, God selected from humanity, unbeknownst to us the reasons why, according to His own mysterious will, right? That God picked which ones He would grant belief and faith and repentance. They would trust in Him. They would be called justified, glorified, and the whole gamut. All right, and so that's a common interpretation of those whom He foreknew. But I would point out that Paul doesn't always use that word for new quite in that way. Uh, In fact, in Romans 11, a couple of chapters later, there we go. uh, He says in verse two, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? And so when Paul, in a couple of chapters, three chapters, not a couple, Brian, right? Uh, he ends up saying the people who rejected God, whom he foreknew, he's talking about the people that lived before him, right? Is kind of who Paul is describing. And so it seems like it's not necessarily people that God had foreloved. And another instance in the New Testament in which this verse is used is in the book of Acts when Paul is on trial. And in Acts 26, verse four, he says, my manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time if they are willing to testify that according to the strictest, strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. Okay. And so he's on trial and he's like, all of these people used to know me. He's describing this knowledge of him in the past. That they had so it wasn't necessarily a love that they had for him okay and so there's another possible interpretation that those that God chose is on the basis of his foreknowledge his knowing the future his counterfactual middle knowledge that he has about humanity right that those that he foreknew could be describing the fact that he knew those who would love God, the people in verse 28, all right? And so, right, the ones who loved God are the ones that are known by God is actually found in 1 Corinthians uh, 8, verse 3. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. And so we kind of get this idea that like, okay, maybe there is this relationship about the people that God is foreknowing in this moment are the ones that God knew would love him. Alright, or knew would find faith in Christ. Okay, and so this is kind of the third possible interpretation there. Alright, that God knows those who love Him. And this is this is one of the ways that I think we could begin to make sense of this passage. That it's a way to reconcile our human free will choices and God's knowledge of those choices, and God's knowledge not. Having an effectual cause on those choices that would then say implicate him of any of our sinful actions, right? That we would still bear full responsibility for the wrong things that we as humans have done. That we couldn't somehow say, well, God must have done it because he chose us for repentance or chose us to remain in sin and thereby he is the effectual cause of all evil, right? That ends up being a hard thing for Calvinism to reconcile with. But nonetheless, it seems as though God is able to work with the free will choices of individuals, of those who love him and those who don't, right? Remember the person who owns the ox that gores things? The ox owner was able to use even that ox for his own good purposes. And in fact, in the life of Joseph, who is He's a few generations from Abraham. He's actually sold into slavery by his brothers. And years later, when he's now in a position of authority and has been used to rescue many people from famine, his brothers find him and he reveals his identity to them. And his brothers are terrified of what he's going to do, like, because they did him wrong. And then in Genesis 50, verse 20, he says this to his brothers. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. All right, and so we saw that in the Joseph story and really throughout the scriptures, even when people are willingly doing the evil thing, that God is still purposing, God is still working all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That God not only foreknew the way that his brothers would treat him, that is Joseph, but he could also play that into his purpose and plan to rescue many people from famine. right. That this was all what God had purposed. And in fact, God had even spoken of their going to Egypt uh, to Abraham in Genesis 12. Right. Like that. He's like, actually, yes, some of your offspring, they're going to be down here and they'll be in slavery for 400 years before I bring them out again. Right. That this was all according to God's purpose, that God foreknew all of the choices of every individual and was able to plan and purpose accordingly. A wonderful example of this, of God being able to use even the wicked choices of men to bring about good is the crucifixion. Okay, consider this. All right, the crucifixion, the most wicked thing humanity has ever done, killing God himself, the only innocent person to have ever lived on the earth. That's the crucifixion, right? The, the, the most wicked thing we've done. And yet even in the midst of that, God was working it for good for the saving of many people. Okay. And so in 1 Corinthians two verse eight, it says this, none of the rulers of this age understood this for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And so notice the counterfactual there, that God happened to know That if certain revelation or knowledge of his plan for salvation had come to the rulers of this age, they would not have crucified Jesus. That's a counterfactual, a possible hypothetical future event that did not occur. Instead, what did God do? He chose to keep his gospel salvation mysterious and partially hidden so that those rulers of this age would continue on with their own choices to kill Jesus. And when it actually talks about the rulers of this age, it's likely referring to spiritual and demonic beings, not necessarily human beings. And in fact, we actually see the demonic and humanity at work together in this event in John's gospel. John 13, 2, at the last supper, it says, during supper, When the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. That is betray Jesus. Okay, that the devil was completely duped by God's plan and purpose for salvation. Right, that he's like, this is a good idea. I'm going to convince Judas to betray Jesus and get him killed. Judas himself thought it was a good idea to betray Jesus. And there were other wicked men involved in this scheme as well. And yet God above all of this reigning supreme is able to purpose and plan for his good pleasure and for our good and salvation using the free will wicked choices of both demons and humans. It's incredible. In fact, in Acts 2, verse 22, when Peter's preaching to some of the very people who made those wicked choices, he said this, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you are crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And so even in the evil deed of the crucifixion, right? Men made choices. They crucified and killed with lawless men. They banded together yelling, crucify him. They cooperated in this plan to murder the son of of God and they were guilty for it. All right. Later on, Peter tells them, repent right (laughs) from this crooked generation and experience this life that God offers you. Right. So the men were definitely guilty. They definitely made those choices. And yet all of this was God's plan. God planned and foreknew right. God that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And so did God cause wicked lawless men to kill Jesus, right? It sounds as though he let them make those choices, but he used it for his glory, that God was able to foresee their choices and allow it to happen. And in fact, even with the leaders of that day, God may have intentionally raised some of them up into positions of authority because he knew their wicked hearts And that he could use even their wicked actions to bring about the rescue of many. All right. In fact, that's what Paul argues in Romans chapter nine about Pharaoh, that God allowed someone with that wicked of a heart, a hard heart to be raised up so that God's glory could be made known to all the nations. And so God... Still planned, God still knew, and God still worked all of this together for the good of those who would love him, those who are called according to his good works and glory, right? So in conclusion, what does this help us, right? Knowing that God has all of this knowledge. And all of this planning, how how does this help us as followers of Jesus living right now in the midst of this creation in which we have limited knowledge? Well, it helps us to trust God, to trust him with our future, right? As Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter six in the Sermon on the Mount, don't worry about tomorrow, right? God knows what you need before you even pray for it. God knows that these are the things that you need. And after all of these things, it's what the Gentiles seek after. But what are we supposed to do? We are to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and he'll add all those things to us. So God knows our future. So we don't have to worry about tomorrow, even though sufficient to the day is the trouble therein. Or what about right Romans chapter 8? When we are in the midst of suffering, we can know that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Or in moments in which we are tempted, 1 Corinthians 10 says that God will not let you be tempted beyond what you can stand, but he will provide a way of escape. And so even if I find myself in the midst of temptation, I can trust God that he foresaw, he foreknew the amount of temptation that with him I could endure that God is not also, he's not just like passive in that moment, but he actually even planned my route of escape from those moments of of temptation that I would flee, right? From idolatry and sexual immorality in those moments, right? God's got it all planned out. So I'm like, all right. Oh, even in this moment when my flesh is acting up to sin against my God and creator, God's at work. God knew this was already going to happen. And he's got a plan. Right. Or consider this for the persecuted church. Right. When he writes letters, the epistles or re- the book of Revelation is written to persecuted churches. Those who are suffering because they love Jesus. They can know that in the future, God will make it all right. That God will bring justice. He will bring those who don't repent and we're harming the saints. He will bring them to just judgment. Right. That they have they can have confidence that even though this life they're experiencing difficulty, it is not worthy to be compared to the glory that is yet to be revealed in them. Or think about this. Our knowing that God knows it changes the way we live and work on this earth. In Ephesians 2 8, it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And it is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. But check this out. We're not saved by works, but we are saved for works in verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so firstly, if you have not yet been saved, I trust that God has been planning and purposing your life to hear this message so that you can respond to the good news of of Jesus, that he chose to come and suffer and die so that you could be forgiven, that you could be saved, that you could be commended as righteousness because of what he did and your faith in him and what he did for you. Right, so firstly, I would recommend that, respond to the gospel, respond with faith, believe in Jesus, receive him as your Lord and savior. And secondly, if you are a believer, notice how God works in us and through us, before us and around us, that we are his workmanship prepared for this purpose to do good works. That's why we're still here on the earth even after coming to the saving faith of Jesus, right? That, that God is working in us to do good works. And when he does so, he plans on us succeeding. Yes, sometimes when we do the right thing, we will experience persecution in response. But God lines up the good works for us to do, that we ought to do, and he's planning them for a purpose. He plans on the people around us needing those good works that he's orchestrated their lives to cross our paths for his good purpose for his glory that when they see our good works they some of them will respond and some of them will glorify our father in heaven that we can trust that god is taking the everyday moments of our lives and he's purposing those moments for his kingdom's sake Right. He plans on people responding to those good works, and he plans on leading us into those good works and purposes that he's planned for us. And so what should we do? We should walk in them. We can walk confidently, even though we don't know what's on the path before us, even though we don't know how the next person will respond to our message, to our prayer, to our hope, to our encouragement. Right. We can trust that God is working that God is active and that he is using us to fulfill his purposes, to bring about this message of hope to the point of belief in the lives of other individuals, that they could come to be saved, that they could be the ones who are foreknown, who are called, who are adopted, justified, glorified. That's what God desires. And he's doing it through everyday people like us, empowered by his holy spirit walking out his good purposed plan. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much, Lord, that even thinking about these things as we consider the verses that you've given us and the truth that you've revealed to us that Lord, we we barely know what's going on. We hardly know. We know in part. And that, Lord, amongst believers, help us to remain in good and wonderful, loving fellowship with those who would have different interpretations of these passages. But, Lord, I thank you that all of us have great confidence in your goodness, in your sovereignty, in your love and in your purposes, uh, that, God, your will prevails, that, God, you have foreordained uh, purposes in this life. In our lives and in salvation that you've arranged it in such a way that Lord, we glorify you. We worship you. We are in awe of who you are and in all of your plan, Lord, we are taken back. That you would look upon us and deem us as those that you were willing to die for. That while we were rebels, while we were your enemies, you chose to die for us for the joy that was set before you. You looked beyond the cross, beyond that suffering to a moment in which your kingdom would have many sons of glory coming in. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged as we study your word, as we grow in the knowledge of God, as we are equipped by one another in the gifts that you've given them. Lord, work through your people, through your church, and we can trust you that even in this season, in the place that you've called us to live, that you are working things together for good. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, take care.